such a large organization, there is inevitably some waste that happens. The trick is to make sure that you minimize it as much as possible by taking these steps that I talked about up front. Many of the reasons why you see those, those newspaper headlines that there was fraud committed or things like that happen was because those stakeholders did not take these steps up front. Hello, welcome to the Cloudcast. I'm Alex Nitkin. I will be your host this week. We've spent a lot of time on this program talking about the state of Chicago's and Illinois' finances, but Cook County, as ever, often gets overlooked in those conversations, and it really shouldn't. We're talking here about an $8 billion annual budget with jurisdiction over more than 5 million people, two hospitals, the largest jail in the United States, overseeing tax collection on 1.9 million properties. And when the pandemic hit, the county had to act as this kind of clearinghouse to help dole out resources and guidance to more than 120 suburban municipalities, including some that were hit really hard by COVID. And Amar Rizki has been behind a lot of that work. Rizki has been the chief financial officer for Cook County since 2017, and he is our guest today. We sat down on Friday, and he talked to me about some of the really unpopular policy choices it's taken to get Cook County's finances to the point where they are today, which is, in a lot of ways, better than they've been in decades. He talked about the legacy of the failed 2017 soda tax and why we should not hold our breath for the county to roll back its tax on gasoline right now. Finally, he talked about how the county is looking to spend the $1 billion it got from the Federal American Rescue Plan, including how the county is trying to cut out waste and corruption before it starts, and how it's going to fulfill a controversial pledge to get a handle on public safety without putting more money into policing or incarceration. This is also a special episode because it is our first in-person conversation in more than a year and 30 episodes we've done of the Cloudcast. Because it was our first time trying it, the audio may sound a little uneven at times, so bear with us, we're still getting the hang of it, but here is my interview with Cook County Chief Financial Officer Amar Rizki. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's really a pleasure to have you on as our first in-person guest on the Cloudcast ever. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I want to start off, if I may, by asking about sort of the big hot topic of the day, which is gas prices. Um, there's been a lot of public discussion at the state level, at the city level, about some temporary relief measures um, that might be in the works to help people fill out their tanks, ease the pain a little bit. The mayor just yesterday um, on Thursday announced a plan to give out 50,000 free gas cards and 100,000 preloaded venture cards. The county levies its own tax on gas. Um, is there talk of some relief in store from the county's perspective? Yeah, so no, I think uh, the developments that we're seeing across uh, are pretty interesting. Uh, we don't know the full details beyond what we've sort of also seen in the in the press when it comes to the specific programs that either the mayor or uh, eventually the, the governor or the state will launch. And so what we're doing is we're monitoring that, that same issue, right? The county levies about six cents uh, per gallon uh, tax on, on motor fuel uh, purchases across the county. And um, that money today goes towards our public safety fund, which uh, funds a lot of the uh, our sheriff's office, our courts uh, as well. And so, you know, while I think we've been working with our independent revenue forecasting commission to get a sense of, you know, what the impact is going to be as a result of, of uh, uh, these elevated gas prices, uh, we have budgeted about $90 million for this fiscal year to, 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 uh, collect from that. And there is, uh, obviously, whenever there's elevated gas uh, prices, you do see reduced driving that has an impact on that. So that's the first order of business to understand what the impact is going to be, because we want to make sure that 
you know, uh, our operations are, are there. Now, balancing with that is to see what impact we could also provide in terms of relief and things like that uh, to our residents, especially the ones that are most vulnerable. Um, you've seen things like we've done before when it comes to the fair transit plan. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've tried to do that when it comes to getting transportation uh, options more available for our residents. And so those are things that we're looking at more broadly. We haven't specified any uh, uh, individual relief efforts at the moment because there are a lot of complicating factors that we have to really consider. One on the relief side of the aisle and then making sure from an operations perspective, this funding goes for our critical public safety uh, apparatuses to ensure that we're not you know, uh, jeopardizing those. Yeah, a part of this conversation is where the tax revenues go, right? And I know this is what was talked about on the city side of things, um, is that, I mean, what would the county lose if it suddenly, you know, cut its gas tax in half? Yeah, so like I said, the, uh, you know, the six cents to a gallon uh, brings in about seven to eight million dollars per uh, month. Six cents a gallon is what the county charges. Correct. Uh, for And so the, the, the federal go government has a tax, about 18 cents or so. Uh, the state has that uh, similar tax, the city has a tax, and the, and the county has a tax. Uh, so depending on where you're buying, those ones would uh, come into play. Um, and so if we were to half that, right, that's about half of the $7 million, $3.5 million a month that we would lose. And as I mentioned, that, the, that goes towards our, our critical public safety uh, infrastructure our jail operations, our court operations, our uh, policing operations in the suburban Cook County, unincorporated areas. And so that's where we wanna make sure that we're not you know, being penny wise, pound foolish when it comes to being able to do that too. And so there is that balancing act that, that'll help us uh, as we, as we wanna be able to understand what are the, the impacts, we come up with something more comprehensive. So it sounds like the short answer is, is no, that there isn't a specific county plan to sort of make gas cheaper for county residents. Not at the moment. Uh, so we, we've not actually looked at any specific uh, thing right now. There's a plethora of options to consider. And so, uh, but we definitely are exploring all of them and we'll be you know, looking at something, how it kind of progresses. Gas gas prices in general globally have moderated to a little bit. Um, as you can see, there was a, a pretty big upswing. Uh, and so you see some of that coming through. So depending on how those things fluctuate, you know, we want to be able to monitor that as well. Have moderated since when? Like over what time period? Over the last week or so. Got it. Yeah. So I just filled my car up this morning. Uh, two weeks ago, I paid five fifty. Today, I paid five fifty or four fifty seven on that. That's a big uh, for difference. a gallon. So it it is. There are some changes there, but you know that could go back up. That's how the nature of the prices are. You have been a kind of senior player in one way or another in the county's financial administration through most of Tony Preckwinkle's tenure as president. She brought you on as director of revenue, correct? When she came on at the end of 2010. Um, could you just describe that moment now, 11, 12 years ago, sort of what situation you walked into? What do the county's finances look like as sort of the tail end of the Stroger era? Sure, it's, it's actually uh, an interesting story. Uh, when I look back at that, I was actually a deputy director. I was brought in under Todd Stroger just before um, that uh, the the primaries uh, in in March of 2010, um, and so at that time when I was brought in, a lot of what you would call basic infrastructure of financial management. Uh, think about when it comes to revenue collections, 
um, something basic as a lockbox where, you know, when you get millions of dollars of checks, we collect almost half a billion dollars in tax revenue through the Department of Revenue. We were still actually going across the street to the state of Illinois post office uh, and picking those checks up physically. Uh, so you can imagine what kind of, uh, you know, reconciliation and other safety challenges those things poses. Um, so that is just one aspect of it. Then the secondary aspect of it is just not having compliance uh, for those taxes, um, making sure that there's a level playing field for all taxpayers uh, as well. So that's what the Department of Revenue in any uh, entity does to ensure that everybody who owes uh, a tax uh, is paying their fair share. Um, so that audit and investigation units uh, needed to be uh, sort of uh, invested in and, and sort of try to do that work. Um, and so we started building that that apparatus uh, out. Uh, and as a result, that's when, when President Preckwinkel came in in late 2010 after she won her election. She decided she saw the, some of those plans or transition team saw some of those plans and the Department of Revenue director at the time uh, and myself were retained based on that and allowed to continue to, to you know, invest and grow in that, uh, execute those plans. It sounds like you're talking about some kind of like debt collectors or people who will go out and say, hey, you owe the county money. So it's not just debt collection. It's more about making sure that, uh, so we have, for example, uh, almost 10 to 12 different taxes. Think about, uh, let's talk about gas taxes. And so the gas tax, the six cents is levied at, at the wholesale level. So you have major corporations who provide gasolines to all these local retail uh, outlets across the county. And so if they're not charging that uh, correctly, then that's an issue. And so we have to make sure that their books and records are, are straight. Uh, we have to make sure that you know they are interpreting the law per the way the ordinance states is correct. So our auditor... Uh, uh, ensure that across all of our tax uh, types, whether it's a cigarette tax or uh, amusement tax, for example, um, or, or in, in this case, the gas tax. And so we have over, over three and a half, four thousand uh, businesses that across all these types of entities that, that we work with to ensure that they're collecting uh, the taxes as, as envisioned. Can you give some kind of idea, whether it's a number or something, to, to just give a sense of how meaningful that compliance enforcement was, how big a difference it made? Yeah. So, you know, when we first came in, there was about almost in the mid 50s is where the compliance was. Um, and, and that 50 percent, 50 percent of what we could we should have been collecting. Wow. And so that was largely because there was uh, the the compliance functions that was missing. Uh, and so people were paying because they were like, okay, we'll pay you. But nobody was going and checking everybody to make sure that they, they, whatever's owed was was being paid. Mm -hmm. um, and so putting some of those uh, building blocks and infrastructure in place allowed us to start increasing that. that state. And this is one of the reasons why that, you know, if you don't collect existing set of taxes, you know, you'll have a hole in your budgets that, that you'll try to plug with other types of taxes. And so that's not fair. And so you want to be able to make sure that at least everybody who uh, has a tax that they have to pay uh, that is currently existing on the books is is paying that fair share. You came into your current position, chief financial officer, in the middle of 2017, um, which was, I would say, a pretty significant moment for Cook County's financial administration. This was the peak of the great soda tax wars. Um, folks may remember the county as part of its 
2017 budget levied a penny per ounce tax on sugary drinks to raise money for the county's health system. Um, there was this huge political backlash. The Board of Commissioners ended up backtracking and repealing it just a few months later. I feel like there's so much that I want to ask about that era, and you and I have never really spoken about it, but I'll just ask for now, um, what did you carry away from that whole experience? What did that saga you know, drill into you that informed the way you think about the job now? Yeah, I think, you know, my main job as a CFO for county is to ensure that, you know, five years from now, the county is in a, a financially stable situation. And so what that means that any decision we're making today, whether it's on a revenue decision or an expense decision, it's not uh, impacting us negatively, you know, five years from now. That's where the long-term forecasting uh, aspects of our jobs um, things what we do with the Revenue Forecasting Commission, all of those apparatuses that we've stood up is helping inform that. Um, and so, you know, that specific uh, uh, time really informed the need for that uh, and to ensure that we are really looking at our five-year plans to, to balance out both sides of the equation, whether it's our revenue side uh, or our expense side. At the time, there were a number of our revenues that were declining. Uh, you've heard me talk about this before. Uh, cigarette tax used to be uh, close to 200 million back in 2010. Today, it's about 90 million, right? That's a good policy decision because people are smoking less. But from a, a funding perspective, you know, our expenses still grow at a minimum uh, basis of inflation. And so if you have a revenue structure that is declining and an expense structure that is at least growing by inflation, you're always going to be in that situation that you'll have a gap to fill. And that was the problem at the time. And so we wanted to make sure that um, we try to address these types of uh, sort of chronic deficits in the out years by doing these types of uh, uh, make, making these types of decisions so that it, it balances out. Um, we have pensions. We have debt that, uh, plan, you know, issuances needs that we have to do for our capital planning uh, perspectives. And so all of those costs um, have to be funded through that. And so that was the main driver why from a financial standpoint, that decision was made. Obviously, hindsight's always 2020. And so, um, you know, we, that was my first year as CFO. My key takeaway was let's look at options to that, that grow, but then also have a much more, uh, you know, uh, broader impact from a public perspective, uh, perspective, not do sort of, you know, one-off type situations where it's, it's only a targeted tax or, or things like that. And so fortunately, we've been able to avoid any tax increases, uh, specifically at the county level since then. We were able to get new taxes levied through the state. Um, for example, our, our the tax on cannabis, which was not just unique to the county, but it was all uh, local units of governments. Um, and then the online sales tax, the ability to calculate, uh, uh, collect that. Which came into play when exactly? That came into play last year. Um, so it was passed in, in late 2019. It was effective January 2021. And that was a game changer uh, because, you know, we knew that folks were buying more and more stuff online uh, versus a brick and mortar store. Um, and that's not fair to the brick and mortar stores that they get to you know, have a higher tax and the online folks like Amazon are, are not getting taxed at that level. And so that, you know, uh, partnership with the Illinois Retailer Merchant Associations uh, really helped push that uh, at the state level. And as a result, now you have a fair playing field. 
there was one pretty significant um, Cook County sales tax hike that I believe it was 2015 into 16. Yes. Um, you and, and the president are sort of very often referring back to it because it was a very controversial, it was a very close vote. Um, it was raising the county's sales tax by one percentage point. Um, and the reason why you're always sort of looking back to it is I infer it as a kind of we told you so moment of it was controversial, people don't want to pay more, but that's the reason why the county's pension fund is in such good shape. Why should, you know, I'm a county consumer and I'm buying groceries or, or what have you, if I'm paying more in that moment, why should it be a comfort to me that, you know, well, Cook County's pension system in 2045 is going to be in great shape, so that's fine. Yeah, I think it, this is a broader question about what public services that, that you know, any level of government provides, right? Uh, there's a funding element to that, uh, whether, like I said, you know, it's the, the payroll uh, or you have debt costs or you have pensions. These are the three big, you know, uh, expenses any unit of government has uh, that allows us to provide the services that our residents rely on. Uh, so if you take a school district, they provide education, right? They raise most of their taxes through property taxes. You know, we have broader authority, so we raise it from a number of other taxes to be able to provide the same public safety and public health services. And so an average residence obviously should be aware that there is uh, those services that they can rely on uh, uh, when, when the time comes, at least, to be able to, to, to get them. And in order for us to make sure that we provide those services, that's why that, that full cost has to be paid. Now, going back to the 2015 sales tax, you know, that wasn't being done. Costs were continuing to grow, but the revenue piece was not being maintained. And that's the, the main reason the president, uh, you know, uh, made sure that along with a very close vote that we were able to take, make that tough decision. It wasn't an easy decision at that time. Um, and what was more important was we were very clear that that was supposed to go to the pensions, uh, which is something that unfortunately a lot of other uh, units of government have not been very uh, good about keeping those promises. You know, you've seen that at the state, there were taxes raised back in the 2000s that, to pay for pensions, but then they were diverted to other things. And so we wanted to make sure that that's never the case. And for seven years in a row since that tax was raised, we've not done that. 80 plus percent of that increase still goes to our pensions, which was a promise we kept, uh, you know, since then. So, you know, that alone is a, is a pretty uh, uh, good thing. But from an average consumer perspective, yes, the services that they rely on, there's a cost for that. And we want to make sure that, that we, we make that cost, you know, efficient. And that's what we've done across the board. You mentioned that cigarette sales tax revenues are way down. Now we have cannabis taxes. Um, does that still leave a revenue hole? Is there, I don't know, maybe some other unhealthy substance out there that might be able to be taxed? Is the sugar tax potentially going to come back is I guess what I'm asking? No. So I think that's where the, the work of the Independent Forecasting Commission is such an important aspect of this. And this is where, when I was mentioning earlier about the, the long-term sort of view of, of what we do today is so important. And so the last few years, as a result of those changes where now we are, have the ability to collect sale, online sales tax, uh, we do have the ability to uh, collect uh, cannabis tax, which is a, a growing market, um, as well as there was gaming taxes. We st were talking about a Chicago casino, and there's another 
a potential casino uh, coming online, at least as a license for it. Uh, in the south suburbs. Yeah, the, the, real quick on that, the county has an opportunity to sort of get in on those earnings from the casino, right? Correct. So under the state law, any casino that goes up into the uh, anywhere in the county or the city's part of the county, uh, we get about between one and a half to two percent uh, of the gross revenues, which is uh, you know depending on where the the thing is. So that would be a, a source of revenue that would come in again, still funding our public safety and public health apparatuses. And so through that mechanism, I think we are uh, in very good shape in terms of how our, our at least immediate future looks like. Um, and obviously, ne- you know, you'll never say never, but that's where we want to be able to continue to keep an eye out for those types of things uh, and make sure that we are bringing in, uh, if there is a need to raise revenue, that it is, it is there's a, uh, a mindful aspect of it to ensure that we're, we're being equitable about it. Uh, and at the same time, that it's not hindering our uh, operations in the way that is a declining source of revenue. So let's go back here to 2017. Soda tax is repealed. Things it seems like sort of stabilize in 2018, 2019. The 2020 budget uh, preliminary budget comes out, and it seems like a really good news preliminary budget. It was what a 12 uh, million uh, preliminary budget gap. It was the lowest uh, in a decade high fives all around. Then there's this pandemic that comes along. Suddenly it is a 410, I think is the number combined between the general fund and and hospital fund preliminary budget gap. Um, Can you just talk about sort of the first days and when it really sunk in the magnitude of this whole situation on the county's finances and sort of what the first steps were in that moment? Yeah. So the biggest nightmare for any financial executive, uh, uh, and my peers are, are I'll tell you the same, is not knowing what to expect, right? We we work very hard to to make sure we know as much as possible. Um, and uncertainty is is you know is, generally it makes a lot of people nervous, but especially finance people uh, even more. Uh, and that was that time from March to April to May of 2020 is what we all went through. Um, that we just did not know. The difference is um, preparing for it. Right, um, making sure you have cushions uh, in your fund balances to absorb some of that, making sure you have emergency protocols to be able to have cash uh, available in case you have to still make some payments and, and money's not coming in. Those were steps we took, started taking in 2014 and 15 uh, to ensure that we have those emergency protocols for cash flow. Um, we have emergency you know, rainy day funds, as, as the more common, uh, common vernacular is, to be able to ensure that if there is these types of drops, we are able to survive them and not have to devastate our, our budgets through by cuts or other, you know, revenue raising impacts that are going to have uh, issues. And so we started working on that in 2014 is because every 10 years you would see since the Great Depression, you would see a, a downwards trend in our economy. And since largely our, our economy, uh, our revenues are based on our econ- economic uh, performance of our region, we knew that there's a chance by 2018, 2019, something was going to come. And so we wanted to be able to have give us ourselves runway. Now, it didn't come in 2018 and 19. It came out about a, a year later. And so we, you know, we're still well prepared when it comes to our, our, uh, uh, our fund balances 
as well as our um, uh, emergency protocols on our liquidity side of things to ensure that we could still pay our bills. Um, and that's our number one uh, concern when it comes to being a finance. So initially, that few months was very, very, uh, you know, uh, difficult uh, for all of us to be able to not be able to say, okay, how bad can this be? Uh, but then soon you see, you saw data coming out. Uh, the uh, uh, the governor put a plan in place to to talk about the the levels of uh, of the pandemic and what that could mean on our restaurants, on our shops, uh, on on you know people going out and and going to a baseball game to a concert. These are all revenue generating activities. And so once those plans started to to be put in place with uh, Illinois Department of Public Health and other um, we were able to use that data to start projecting and, and modeling out uh, what the revenues uh, scenarios could be. And so that really helped us start to narrow. We couldn't still answer the whole thing, but at least we had some more educated guesses now that we had that data out there to be able to do that. Talk me through how that ends up getting to a situation where the county does not have to raise taxes in 2021. Um it just dipped into that rainy day fund that you were talking mm-hmm. about. What are all of the sort? What's the patchwork that had to come together? Um, hundreds of of positions, vacant positions, were eliminated. Right? What was sort of the, the sacrifice that was made so that taxes would not be raised on residents? Yeah. So I think the biggest sacrifice that was made was our internal uh, staff. Right. Uh, we just like every other organization has faced uh, hiring challenges, um, and so that. You know, as as our services are expanding and there's more work to be done, we have the same amount of people, or in some cases, less people to do it. And so, when you are tightening your belt, that's one of the key things that we have to do, and and it is important to do that because we just wanted to make sure that we were able to get through this that period without impacting our overall region in a very negative way. And so that really, uh, you know. All of our departments across all our elected offices, along with the, the health system, stepped up and just did more with less or, or with the same. Um, and that was the main sacrifice that was done when it comes to be able to on the expenditure side of the aisle. One resource that did come along pretty early there was the CARES Act, and the county was able to build out a lot of programming from the CARES Act. Can you just talk for a minute about what the county was able to do with that CARES Act funding and and crucially, what it was not able to do with that money. Sure. So the CARES Act, um, when it first uh, was approved, the intention of the federal government was to provide immediate relief. And and the, the, by definition, that means that you have a problem right now. Here's some money to help with that. And so because of that, there were some very targeted requirements that, they, that we could use that funding on. Um, we could only use it on, on public safety and public health payroll purposes. I could not, for example, pay my salary. I'm not a public safety or public health person. I'm an administration person. Um, So there was that aspect of it, but it was good at least because that's where majority of our payroll costs are. So being able to fund that, that really helped us get through that 2020 period. Above and beyond that, we could use some of those funds to help um, uh, the sort of Uh, the negative impacts of the the pandemic, at least on our economic activity, try to plug some of those gaps. And so uh, our board approved uh, $80 million uh, for our economic development efforts that allowed us to 
help uh, small businesses, you know, continue to stay in business as the summer months started to come back online and they needed to start generating activities. All those little things that you see when you go to a, a, uh, a restaurant or a barber shop where you have those uh, plexiglasses and things like that, that's the kind of stuff those folks could be able to pay for that as a result of our, our efforts. Uh, similarly, uh, outside the city of Chicago, we have 120 plus municipalities. And when you include library and park districts, you have talk, you're, you're looking at almost 500 other jurisdictions that again had similar needs. Under the CARES Act, the federal government did not give money to everybody. They gave it to the large units of governments, the state, the city, and the county, and then asked the county and the state to go ahead and make sure you can, we can distribute it amongst some of those uh, entities. And that's where our, our uh, you know, we started providing that support to all of the municipalities outside the city of Chicago. Uh, I'm most proud of how we did it because typically whenever grant distributions are done, they are done through a, uh, a population-based uh, allocation. You know, whatever your population is, that's the ratio people would use. Um, you know, so we knew that that was not the, the most equitable way to do it. The better equitable way to do it is figure out where the needs are the most. And so we came up with this one uh, of a kind equity uh, distribution model in collaboration with the uh, the Chicago Metropolitan Agency of Planning, CMAP. Um, and that really helped us give money to every jurisdiction out there, even the ones that were more well off, um, but give more to those that really were suffering because you saw the pandemic was also impacting along those same disparity lines that you saw where areas that have more, uh, you know, are, are less well-to-do within the county had higher rates of, of the pandemic too. Uh, because of those same reasons, they don't have access to healthcare and things. And so that's how we ended up using a lot of that funds to support uh, those municipalities because they were facing the same challenges. Uh, they didn't have money to pay for their police officers, their firefighters, um, you know, their their other uh, public health first responder type folks. And so that funding went to, to support those uh, those types of uh, services. A year later, the American Rescue Plan comes along and the county gets $1 billion from the SLRF, the State and Local Relief Fund. Um, you know, the county, we all sort of noticed, took a different approach from the city, which rolled out this sort of fully fleshed out blueprint with its budget, saying here's our $2.7 billion Chicago recovery plan and what all the different buckets are going to be. The county took this sort of phased approach of here are the first few programs that we're going to fund, here are the short-term things, and then we're still now sort of learning about some of those longer range plans. Why take that approach? Why do it that way? Yeah, so I think, um, as I mentioned, the CARES Act, the job and intention from the U.S. Uh, Congress was to really be relief, immediate, money get out the door. American Rescue Plan was more of a recovery effort, and that's why you had more time uh, built in for recovery. And, and, and when, you, when you talk about recovery, it doesn't mean that you, know, you just get money out of the street for certain programs. You have to really envision where the needs are and how we can come out better. Um, going into the pandemic, as, as we mentioned before, there was already areas that were struggling, uh, parts of the county, and there were needs that were out there that, that had chronically underfunded uh, opportunities. Um, and so our goal was to make sure that we at least take a little bit of that time um, and really assess the needs properly before we start allocating that. And so that's why we, uh, we stood up a, 
a pretty extensive community engagement process that started in, in the summer of 2021 and, and culminated in, uh, in, in the fall that allowed us to get that data from um, across all our stakeholders. Um, and that helped us really gauge where the priorities are and where the needs are and then build that plan accordingly. And so now what we have is we have programs, there's 80 plus programs that have been approved, uh, both from a near-term perspective that, that are gonna be immediate in nature. And then some of them are more transformational, things like we've never done before to address these chronic needs in a much more comprehensive manner over the next three to five years. And so that's the reason why we did that. Um, it takes a little bit of time, but allows us to really make sure that we have the full um, set of information and, and data to set the priority for this money. Yeah, let's dig into that a little bit more, this idea of setting up this whole constellation of programs. Obviously, it's a great thing for the county to be getting all this money, but mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of you know, bureaucrats of various stripes at the state and local level complain about, you know, Congress is just shows up and like, here's this incomprehensible amount of money. Good luck. Um, you are going to build out the infrastructure, the software, the staff, the community relationships, and just make sure it gets into the right hands. Where do you start? How does that process happen? So I think that that is a is a great uh, question because it speaks to the infrastructure build out that I spoke about earlier, right? Um, having that set, that infrastructure build out, basically accounting, you know, functions, auditing functions, uh, legal functions, procurement functions. These are the basic building blocks of making sure the money that we are all uh, empowered with are being spent to the best of their ability in the in the way they're intended to be. And so we we had that. That's where we start from. So there's a policy element of what the need is, but you have to make sure that it's within the legal bounds. And you have to make sure that nothing uh, fraudulent or uh, happens with that funding. And so you, when you're building these programs, you have to have your legal teams and your audit teams right there with you to build those programs. So that's where we started. And we did that with the CARES funds. Um, and, and that allowed us to have a lot of lessons learned. And so now with, um, you know, with the ARPA funding, it's similar processes, but your scale is much, much bigger. Um, and so now we're bringing on more people to help with those areas, uh, systems, trackings, reports, making sure there's transparency around anybody, whether it's folks like yourself or our, our interested community members uh, and the federal government who requires this reporting, all have access to the information that what it is that the county is gonna do. And so standing up that infrastructure was the first uh, set, uh, which we were also doing, working with our IT teams, working with our human resources and procurement teams to ensure uh, that we have those building blocks. And then on the policy side, our economic development team, our environmental teams, our, our healthcare teams are now working on the policy elements. So now where we are in this place is those two elements come together. And by summer, you'll start seeing a lot of those types of programs coming out. But it gives us also confidence that we've done that upfront work about making sure that you know, we're not going to go awry with these with these costs. The Bureau of Finance was budgeted for dozens of new positions in this past budget. Um, hiring is obviously a, a tricky proposition everywhere right now. Yes. How many, uh, where is that process now? How many new people have you managed to bring on more or less? So it's much lower than uh, what we'd uh, anticipated and would like. Uh, but we've had some initial, uh, our, our top priority is to ensure that we have folks in our procurement department. Uh, because there's very stringent rules, both at the federal level and through our county, county procurement codes that we have to follow. 
And so because a lot of this funding will go out, it'll be in forms of contracts and, and grants, which have to have those apparatuses. So we've been working uh, hard with our HR teams to ensure that we can bring some of those folks on who can have that oversight as that money goes on. So we've made some progress there, not enough. Um, and then on the budgeting side is the next set of investments that we want to be able to do to ensure that the budgets, the money that is being spent is being done uh, in a responsible manner. And so our, our team at the led by our budget director and at Guzman uh, is, is uh, working through those elements. So you bring up a really important aspect of this, which is the integrity of the whole process. Correct. There are a lot of people who are going to be justifiably cynical about government in Illinois and its ability to responsibly give out this money without some being scraped off the top or wasted in some way, um, and not even necessarily in illegal ways, maybe just in the form of you know an intermediary organization that just sort of has a lot of overhead by nature of how it works. Um, with so much money, a billion dollars we're talking about, isn't it inevitable that some of this money is going to end up being used inefficiently and effectively so, or wasted? So that that is a important question. And it is a it, it is a risk that not just any like the county faces, but everybody faces, right? All local units of government uh, face that and corporations and, and private uh, entities also face that. The trick is to make sure that, you know, you minimize it as much as possible by taking these steps that I talked about up front. Many of the uh, reasons why you see those, those newspaper headlines that there was fraud committed or things like that happened was because those uh, uh, stakeholders did not take these steps up front. You can never eliminate that risk. You know, human nature is such that there will, things like that will, will unfortunately fall to the cracks. However, if you take those steps up front, make sure people are aware that there is legal and audit related, you know, checks and balances in place and there's clear expectations, the likelihood of that is reduced very, very uh, uh, low. And so that's our, our goal is to make sure that we are able to put those checks and balances in place, set that expectation up front for our departments internally and for those people who are actually going to be receiving this money outside uh, and then hold them accountable through that. And that's where the, the audit team increases, our budget team increases, uh, will help ensure that uh, part as we, as we spend this money over the next few years. Let's talk about the public safety aspect of all of this spending. Um, former Cook County Commissioner Richard Boykin, who is now running to unseat President Preckwinkle and who not coincidentally was also sort of the tip of the spear in the soda tax repeal effort. Um, back in 2017, he is, as part of his campaign, drawing a lot of attention to what was called the Justice for Black Lives resolution that the board passed in summer 2020 in the midst of all of the sort of racial uprisings and upheaval. Um, it passed 15 to 1 in the Board of Commissioners with the president's support. And um, I want to be very specific about the language in the resolution and what it says. Um, be it resolved, the Cook County Board of Commissioners does declare that to keep communities safe and reduce contact between people and, uh, and law enforcement, that is increasing, that has historically increased unaccountable violence inflicted on black and brown communities physically, economically, and emotionally. Cook County should engage in efforts to redirect funds from policing and incarceration to public services not administered by law enforcement that promote community health and safety equitably across the county. A lot of people, including Cook County Commissioner, current Cook County Commissioner Sean Morrison, who is the one vote against it, and former Commissioner Boykin, are saying. Translation, defund the police. That's what it says, literally. Um, my first question on this is, how do you continue to live out the values of that resolution 
you know, diverting funding from policing and incarceration to, you know, supports and services um, in ARP? How does that manifest in ARP? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the second question is, how do you defend from those kinds of, you know, Cook County is defunding the police and, and here we're all living with the consequences with higher crime? Sure. Look, I think as CFO, my purview is is not from a policy perspective, it's from a resource allocation perspective, right? Um, it's all from our side, it's, it's, a, it's a question about how do you allocate your resources effectively to address, uh, you know, some of the historical inequities that have happened uh, to, to address the, the challenges that, that uh, uh, minority uh, uh, residents have faced uh, over the years and decades. And, and then also ensure that, you know, we have support networks to be able to ensure our public safety uh, apparatuses too, which is a mandate for us as well. And so balancing that is, is from a resource allocation standpoint is the role that I play and, and I provide advice to our county uh, board president and the board itself. And so how do we do that? Um, we have been working over the past decade, plus, President Practical, as you've heard her say many times, to, to help sort of move as much as possible into some of these violence prevention programs, working with the Justice Advisory Council to ensure that we're uh, you know, empowering them and, and, and some of the community members to be able to have alternatives out there for uh, reducing recidivism, as well as uh, ensuring we have workforce programs to the Chicago Workforce Partnership to be able to address this. Addressing those root causes and assigning resources to those is where this uh, element from a policy perspective is going to come out to, uh, to fruition. Um, when President Peckpool first came in, we had 10,000 uh, average inmate population at our jail. Today, it's somewhere in the 5,000, uh, you know, give or take. And so that 50% reduction obviously has, has costs that have been reduced too. And that's how we've been able to fund some of those types of things at the JAC, uh, as well as reduce some of our real estate. Which Justice is, Advisory Council, JAC. JAC, correct. Um, and also reduced our, our physical footprint in many areas where the jail has now shut down a number of its, um, you know, older wings, if you will, that has saved us cost from an interest uh, perspective, from a maintenance perspective. So as those monies are, are being uh, saved, they're being diverted into these types of programs. That was how we launched in 2020 the, the equity fund and inclusion fund. Uh, you'll get to hear more about what the work has been done on that at the next upcoming board meeting uh, and where we are supersizing a lot of those initiatives that were done. And then when you ta tag on what we've been able to uh, articulate, what our plans are for the American Rescue Plan funds, you see all of those programs, almost 80, 70 to 80 percent of them will be addressing some of these inequities. Uh, violence prevention, workforce partnership, mental health, uh, public health, educating uh, folks around um, uh, opioid crisis and things like that, uh, small business assistance, across the board addressing, again, some of the same root causes of the violence that plagues our communities. And so that money is not going to build fancy new buildings uh, and, and hire more uh, police officers. That money is going towards those efforts that that resolution speaks to in, in many different ways. And so that's how the, the resource allocation uh, plan comes to, to, to fruition. As we move forward, we'll see, uh, we'll get lots of data that allows us to show which one of these programs work best. Um, and that's really the, the key thing for me and my team to ensure that as that data comes through, 
we are then figuring out again that five-year time frame. Um, how do we reorient our budgets to ensure that we can support those uh, things beyond uh, the ARPA timelines? Let's quickly touch on public health, the other big sure. bucket before we wrap things up here. Um, I remember before the pandemic, there was this kind of underlying systemic question mark within the health system that expenses were way outpacing revenues in large part because of uncompensated care, the cost of you know, taking people, taking care of people who don't have insurance, who can't be turned away. Um, since uh, Israel Rocha, the new, well, how long has he been here? About a year now? A year and a half. Um, year and, wow, time flies. He's been here a year and a half since he took over as the CEO of Cook County Health. Um, in all of the budget projections we've seen, that uh, uh, fiscal imbalance seems like it's just sort of vanished. And I've tried to ask um, Mr. Rocha about this in, in different circumstances, and it's felt like He's sort of waved that away, like, no, that's not really an issue anymore because of investments that we've put in one place or another. You are someone who, in a broad sense, is responsible for overseeing the health system, but also yes. they have their own, you know, CFO and all that. Can you just sort of, in, in layman's terms, help us understand how that situation was, was kind of straightened out? Yeah. So I think um, they're not done yet, first of all, right? It's a, it's a long-term, continuous sort of uh, plan that you have to uh, work to. So one of the key things that they started doing, uh, and this is right before uh, Mr. Roja arrived, was started focusing on revenue cycle, uh, which basically is making sure that everybody who owes money to the to the health system, and these are not people who can't afford to pay. These are people who have insurances and, and are, are eligible through Medicare and Medicaid. Those are payers. Um, that we are maximizing that, right? There were some uh, gaps in, in those areas where the health system needed to invest more people, more technology to ensure uh, the billing is right, the reimbursement models are maximized to be able to get that funding in. And so that's what uh, was worked on in late 2019 throughout 2020. And you starting to see some of the dividends being paid as a result of that. The second thing is county care was stood up because largely we wanted to make sure that anybody who's eligible uh, under the new Affordable Care Act back in, well, as it was passed in 2012, we are also, we have a number of patients who were eligible in that. So we were able to uh, get them now covered and now have them still get the services at our, at our facilities and ensure that we can then seek the reimbursement from the federal government through that. And so that apparatus was again maximized. So a combination of those things on the revenue side of the aisle really helped improve the, uh, the, uh, the, the money coming in the door. And on the expense side of the aisle, they started looking at where some of the uh, unused or, or low volume uh, uh, sort of uh, services were and started sunsetting them. So that's where in 2020, there was, as part of the budget, they, they reduced uh, some of the clinics, consolidated those. Um, they looked at you know, other lines of services that were very seldomly used and so reduced those too. Um, and so... A combination of those things and, and continues chipping away at it is where they're they're starting to the the trick and the goal again would be to continue that as we go forward because that's the most important thing. There will always be people who come to us as a public safety net hospital who won't have the ability to pay. Our goal should be that we should be able to make sure that the people who do have the ability to pay are paying for those uh, types of things, and that way the fiscal balance remains uh, in, in balance. So finally, I want to cast into the future a little bit with ARPA, with the American Rescue Plan Act money. 
the big question all along with ARPA has been, how are you going to make this money last for all governments at all levels? The, the county's ARP plan includes things like building out a new small business support center in the Bureau of Economic Development, launching a new Department of Mental Health within the health system. These are big permanent expansions of government. Um, how are you going to keep yourself from finding yourself in 2024 when the allocation deadline for this money has passed? Um, you know, not holding the bag for these programs that you suddenly don't have the money to fund anymore. Yeah, no, I think that that is, again, one of the biggest uh, things that we are keeping an eye out for, because as I've mentioned at the top of the uh, discussion, you know, my job is to make sure five years from now we're still solvent, right? And so how do you do that? Um, well, the, the, the time we have right now is to help us really gauge what you know, programs are going to be uh, needed beyond that timeline versus not. There's definitely going to be some programs that are, are you know, as we come out of this pandemic, that will get uh, sunsetted. For example, our emergency rental assistance program that will not be needed anymore as, as people start, you know, uh, are able to pay for that kind of stuff. Um, but there will be other programs, for example, the small business that you highlighted, the Department of Public Health, those are needs that were not there and have an economic impact in our communities. And so making sure that we are diverting, making room in our budgets every year up until that point will allow us to sustain any of those types of expenses beyond that timeline. And so the equity fund is our first down payment towards those types of goals. That's money that the county put it on from its own reserves uh, to be able to fund that. And our goal would be to continue to grow this to a point where now you can sustain any of those types of expenses beyond that. And so as we start seeing, um, you know, different modes of uh, uh, service delivery, you know, we're, we're investing a lot on our technology and some of that is starting to come to fruition. And so we'll be able to have uh, resource allocations that can then move towards these types of programs. And so, again, balancing those will, will be the way to go. And that's how we're expecting to, uh, to, to do that. I'm going to have to ask you more about technology next time. That's a whole other conversation. Um, Amar Rizki is the Chief Financial Officer for Cook County. Thank you so much for coming on the Clubcast. It's been really great. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Amar for joining us. Cook County is set to release its preliminary budget forecast for 2023 by the end of the spring. This episode of the Cloudcast was produced and edited by me, Alex Nedkin. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks.